Have you heard about our latest subscription offer? Subscribe to an Irish Examiner annual subscription today and receive a free pair of OneSonic earphones valued at $79.99. Stay informed with our award-winning journalism and enjoy your favourite podcasts in premium sound. Visit irishexaminer.com forward slash earphones to subscribe now. Hurry, this offer won't last long. Terms and conditions apply. Offer available while stocks last. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on 19th of July, 1991, County Loud Farmer and father of seven, Tom Oliver, was kidnapped by the IRA. He was tortured, shot in the head, and his body dumped on the northern side of the border. Provisional IRA claimed he had been an informer, but that is vehemently disputed by his family. The murder sparked outrage on the tight-knit Cooley Peninsula. Tom Oliver had been a popular local man, and despite some support for the provost campaign in the area, this was seen as an outrage. For instance, a protest march against the provisional IRA was organised, and many ties, many community ties, were sundered as a result of what had happened. Beyond that, Tom Oliver's murder was unremarkable by the standards of the time. Now, of course, every violent death is an unspeakable crime, but there was a lot of it about then driven primarily, but by no means exclusively, by the IRA. Nobody was ever charged with Tom Oliver's murder, and it seemed it would go unsolved. Then, nearly 20 years later, it re-emerged in, of all places, a tribunal set up to investigate Garda collusion with the provost. A British agent, known as Kevin Fulton, told the inquiry he knew about the murder and how it had come about. He also implicated another British agent, known as Steakknife, who has been widely identified as a former senior provo, Freddie Scapatici. And it should be noted for the record that Scapatici denies being knife. Another figure who was asked about the murder at the tribunal was former assistant chief constable of the RUC and current Garda commissioner, Drew Harris. Mr. Harris had overseen intelligence during his time at the RUC and he passed the chairman of the tribunal and note on which was written the name of the man Mr. Harris believed to have ordered Tom Oliver's murder. As a result of this and other developments, Ungarda Shikhan instigated a cold case review in 2017. The following year, the Garda team asked the PSNI for cooperation on the matter. They were told that anything to do with the Tom Oliver murder was being handled by a special investigation called Canova, which was set up to investigate the activities of 
steak knife stroke Capitici. This was being headed up by a chief constable from uh, Britain, uh, John Boucher. Now, as a result of being told this, the Gardaí handed over all they had gathered to the British investigation. And it would appear nothing much has happened since, certainly in terms of any results. Why that appears to be the case is something that has been bothering my guest today. That's retired Chief Superintendent John O'Brien, who is very familiar with the case. John, also, I should point out here, has written a number of books about policing, the latest of which is Securing the Irish State 1922 to 2022, which has an emphasis on the state security element of of, uh, the Gardaí's operation. I've also written about this case because it is one of those killings from the Troubles era that still resonates, not least for Tom Oliver's family and the people of the Cooley Peninsula. Today, we're going to explore why it would appear that there has been little progress in the current investigation and whether there is any prospect of a prosecution being brought for what was a horrific murder. John O'Brien, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. John, when Tom Oliver was murdered, you were in, in the prime of your career in Ungardi Shikan, and I'm sure it's an event you recall very well. What was the reaction like? Well, uh, the reaction in Cooley was quite remarkable, Michael, because remember the Cooley Peninsula, which is that narrow peninsula that juts out into the Irish Sea, you know, and it's on the literally on the borderlands between north and south, is a homogenous community where everybody knows everybody as by and large. And by definition, everybody knows more or less what's happening in that, in that particular area, just like your hometown or mine. There are very few secrets. So following the killing, uh, of Tom Oliver, the community largely, maybe not exclusively, split in two halves. Those who were absolutely horrified, outraged by the killing of Tom Oliver and blamed it on the people they knew who were associated with the provisional IRA in Cooley and in generally in the Newry, South Down, County Loud, Ar- South Armagh area. So that split the community down the middle and it was a very obvious sign of how knowledgeable it is that people are in the country. And they were outraged at the killing and the manner of the killing, because we do recall, Mick, that a local priest said it looked like, apart from him being shot in such a savage way, uh, you know, six bullets in the head and every bone in his body, the priest said, looked like it was broken. This was a horrific uh, crime. And of course, we all recognize that the provisional IRA maintained their their grip on the communities, uh, particularly in the border areas, through fear, intimidation and killing when they deemed it necessary. And of course, at the heart of this is the extraordinary stories of the uh, British agents who were had infiltrated the provisional IRA uh, and the other one who had been co-opted by the British, Scapitici, that you mentioned already, uh, as an agent of the British Army for many, many years. Okay, and we'll bring it forward to that. So uh, that was the murder, as you say, horrific event, one that impacted massively on the local community. And I think it's fair to say on people in the South in particular, generally, and Tom Oliver was a highly regarded man, and uh, this was seen as, as a savage element of the Provo campaign. It would also appear, as you say, in, in terms of close-knit community, local people would have had a fair idea of those who were involved, if not directly involved in murdering the man, and certainly in, in the wider operation on behalf of the Provos. That was that. It was unfortunate, like literally thousands of other deaths, 
Uh, we move it forward. There's a ceasefire in 94, an ultimate ceasefire in 97, the Good Friday Agreement. And unfortunately, like an awful lot of killings, this seems to be consigned to history. Then we come forward to the Smithics Tribunal. This was set up to investigate whether or not there had been collusion with, I think, one individual in particular, and then it expanded a small bit, Gardaí, who were based in the northeast, and whether or not they'd been involved particularly in an incident in which two senior IUC men had been murdered in a, a, a car bomb. In the course of this, this man, Kevin Fulton, that's the name he goes by, a British agent who'd infiltrated the IRA, gave evidence. And he brought it to the tribunal's attention. What did he have to say, John, in terms of his version of what happened around Tom Oliver? Kevin Fulton stroke Peter Keeley. Kevin Fulton is his, his AKA. He actually joined the British Army about 10 years previously. And then he was given a strategic discharge from the British Army and with the mission to infiltrate the provost. In, uh, in Newry and, uh, and uh, County Loud area, and he succeeded in doing that. And he tried to make a linkage in his evidence. Now, this was subsequently withdrawn in the High Court by the Smithy Tribunal when it was challenged, where he tried to make a linkage between a sergeant serving in the guards at that time and the killing of Tom Oliver, i.e. that this particular sergeant individual was somebody who was operating uh, as an aide, as a collaborator with the IRA and so on. Now, his story in that regard was so implausible. And he also went on to give a rather fantastic idea of, of how the kidnapping took place, i.e. make, he said, two kidnapping, kidnappings had taken place and that he had driven the, um, the kidnap van that had conveyed Tom Oliver on the first occasion. Of course, nobody now believes that there was more than one kidnapping, and the unfortunate Tom Oliver did not make a return for a second kidnapping. Now, perhaps it's good for our audience to remember that, that uh, Kevin Fulton, like any other agent, has a series of handlers, and there's a hierarchy that sits above him. So it would be wrong to think of Kevin Fulton as an individual who is suddenly operating on his own in the border area. He is part of a system of an apparatus, and part of that system does require agents uh, to, A, not to engage, certainly in our jurisdiction, in criminal activity, and B, or maybe A, to inform their own handlers and their controllers in advance of any serious uh, uh, crime coming down in order to preserve and save life. Now, there are serious questions around whether oh, those norms were observed in relation to him. So he raised this air at the Smithy Tribunal. And incidentally, and it's very important. Speaking Tribunal had no remit in relation to the Tom Oliver killing. I'm not saying that Tom Oliver's killing because it was a huge assault on his family and his friends, his neighbours, his cousins shouldn't be investigated. But it was no part of Smitty. And it was introduced literally as an attempt to smear this particular sergeant because the other strands of evidence were not forthcoming in relation to making a linkage. OK, so I, what I take from that, John, is that Kevin Fulton claimed he was present at the first, as he had it, of two kidnappings of Tom Oliver because Tom Oliver was suspected by the provost of being an informer. Now, as you say, I don't think anybody takes that as at face value that there were two kidnappings. But what it does do is raise the possibility, if not probability, that Fulton was present at the kidnapping or certainly had detailed knowledge about it. And that in turn raises a question as to if that was the case, surely he would have informed his handler that there was a plot in some capacity or other to kill Tom Oliver, or at the very least, 
that Tom Oliver was regarded as being under suspicion by the provost. Yeah, that would be a normal deductive thing if you were looking at this, I guess, through 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 through, no, through normal eyes. Now, Fulton himself has written a book which he graphically describes the kind of the scenario, the modus operandi of operating as an undercover agent. Now, in that, he very conveniently forgets the Tom Oliver incident that is described so graphically and completely at the Smithy Tribunal. And but he deals with that particular point you made, Mickey, is you know, would it not be the job of the agent? To when an egregious crime is going to be committed to inform his handlers. Now, quite often he uh, he says that time didn't allow, or B, he informed his handlers and they allowed the operation to run because at that stage uh, the enemy was the provisional IRA and all means fair and foul would be used to either discredit them or to undermine the organization. Uh, so he paints the picture of somebody who is in his words and not in mine, legitimately involved in counter in, in counter-terrorism against the IRA and using each and every means that the provost themselves would use in their offensive against the state. So that's the rather despicable moral ground for the rationale for his behavior. But yes, he says in some occasions, I didn't have the time. And then B, on other occasions, like a punishment shooting where he was allowed to run with it because it created mayhem in the provost ranks. And indeed, he was himself, make, just to make the point, he says, inducted into the provost's nutting squad, that's their so-called internal disciplinary unit that were responsible for murders and tortures and torture during the, the trouble. So this is a complex sto uh, story, So, and that's his own explanation for it, but he forgets in his book, he forgets to mention the Tom Oliver incident that he described so graphically to Smitty. Okay, one way or the other, as you say, he told the sworn tribunal he had some involvement and some knowledge around Tom Oliver. A right. second man in that respect that is understood, and I think Fulton implicated him as well, is our other agent, Steakknife. And this, as I say, is believed to be Freddy Scapatici, who denies that it is him. But Steakknife was within the uh, operation of the British Army, also a member of this nutting squad, which effectively was the IRA squad that tortured and extracted confessions from suspected informers. Steakknife was also understood to be knowledgeable of and perhaps physically in the vicinity when where Tom Oliver was abducted and taken to. Yeah, the suggestion, Mickey, is that uh, Steak Knife was part of the reception committee that was available to execute Tom Oliver at the other end. He was abducted from, from, his, from his farm in Cooley, and then he was taken across a, a route into South Armagh. And the suggestion is by, uh, through, at, at the Smitty Tribunal, by Kevin Fulton, that uh, Steak Knife was part of the reception committee. And of course, he would have been part of the execution squad is what he, what he did. Just to maybe make, to help our listeners a little bit uh, in relation to the overall structure is, you mentioned earlier on Operation Kenova, which sounds like a great big mouthful. But just well, I was, going to, I was going to come to that soon, John, just in, in, in terms oh, yeah. of chronologically keeping it. We now have, from Smithing, we have Fulton, we have the possibility that Stake, now both of whom, remember, are British agents, and even if they did not inform their handlers prior to this so-called operation, they certainly would have knowledge subsequent to it as to what had happened. But you have the two of those. Now, the third individual to appear at Smithy was, in his policing capacity, Drew Harris, 
by then he was he was the assistant commissioner, or sorry, the assistant chief constable in the RUC in charge of intelligence. Through that role, as anybody in his position would have, he had cultivated great intelligence sources. And as a re- result of those, he believed he knew through his intelligence contacts who had ordered Tom Oliver's uh, killing. He wasn't willing, and I suppose perhaps in in the circumstances it wouldn't have been appropriate to publicly name that individual, but he did hand the name over to uh, Judge Smithick at the tribunal. That's correct, isn't it, John? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Yes, and uh, that's in the transcript of the tribunal, I think. I think uh, his evidence was read into the record on the 18th of October 2012, so anybody can verify and see exactly what he said. But yes, he was asked a direct question by, by counsel is, did you make that information available? <clears throat> Excuse me, did you make that information available to the Garda Shikana? And he said yes. And he went on to say something else which is quite important, he says, yes, because the crime happened in their jurisdiction, not his exact words, but that's exactly the impact of what he said. So it went to the guards because the murder and abduction of Tom Oliver was their responsibility. Quite different from what he said at a later stage, and we get there in turn. But just for our listeners, mate, Drew Harris was the chief contact of the chief operator on behalf of the chief constable of the PSNI in relation to all intelligence matters within the PSNI. Very big brief. He was the contact with uh, MI5, uh, again, a quite a legitimate role from where he was. He was in charge of all covert operations. So that's all undercover operations. So, And he had more particularly for what we're talking about now, he had particular responsibility for legacy or inquests and inquiries. And he had direct uh, liaison with the historical inquiries team, which was a team running before Operation Kenova came along in the north, looking at the old models, the legacy, the legacy events. And he told us at the tribunal that there was 3,260 uh, and 260 deaths during the troubles and 747 murders 
post the troubles, and he indicated to Smithick as well as giving his story on on who um, on who killed or gave the orders to kill Tom Oliver, he gave that as his background. So he is a uniquely qualified individual with regard to the very dark history in Northern Ireland from either a model or a collusion, uh, uh, all of the legacy issues. Drew Harris is the man with the information. Yeah, in, in, in the capacity he served. So we now have a scenario, uh, moving that on from post-Smithic. We are now have a scenario where two British agents certainly seem to have information in relation to the murder. And Drew Harris, in his, it was still, he was still in, in the PSNI at the time, through his role as the senior intelligence officer, uh, having certainly what he believes to his intelligence sources and uh, as anybody in his position would have cultivated such sources, he believes he uh, has knowledge as to who ordered it. So that is the state of play in relation to the uh, knowledge that might have been about in terms of who could have killed Tom Oliver at that time. Now, right. moving it forward, the Gardaí, as a result of and we've seen this in relation to other crimes, most recently, obviously, Sophie Tuscan Duplantier. A, a confluence of events comes about and the Gardaí decide there is, is a case to be made for having a so-called cold case review. That is conducted. And after the initial review, it's handed on to a team to reinvestigate it. They begin reinvestigating it in 2017, 2018. And then they get to a point, and just to remind listeners, remember, Tom Oliver was abducted in the Republic. His body was found in the North. So quite obviously, there's a requirement for cooperation uh, in terms of knowledge, in terms of forensics between both jurisdictions. This cold case team go to their counterparts in the PSNI and say, look, can we some cooperation here? Very standard thing between two police forces. However, in this instance, they're told, well, now, we have an issue there because anything to do with Tom Oliver's murder has been taken over by Canova. This investigation, headed up by uh, British uh, Chief Constable John Boucher, that was originally briefed with investigating the activities of this man's steak knife. So, John, how did Canova come to oversee Tom Oliver's murder if that was not in its brief? Well, that is an extraordinary case. And look, I have nearly 40 years of experience uh, of policing and, and I've researched it, uh, you know, since. I have never seen a situation in terms of international policing cooperation that fits into this formula, this formula of an unofficial inquiry. But let me kind of cut to the chase on this is the team that you mentioned on the Garda side, Mick, they, that did the cold case review and then the, did the review of that, as you said, they they made that information, and rightly so, available to the PSNI, but they also made a, a reciprocal request to my knowledge, they asked the PSNI to share the crime scene information available from the scene where, where Tom Oliver's body was found. Now, that's extraordinarily important because all of this is, is relates to how would one normally do a criminal investigation and is based on the information available. Now, that information was not made available to them. Whether that was for administrative reasons or others, that's for other people to answer. But then enter Canova into the into the scheme of things. And remember that uh, John Boucher and Canova, on their own website, which is publicly available, make absolutely no mention that investigating the murder, abduction, and killing of Talmala has been part of their brief. So that's for me is question number one. What are they doing there in the first place? Bear in mind this, Mick, and this is very important. In June of 2020, 
John Boucher, who speaks in a very mellifluous and calming manner. He has a very good uh, radio presentation. He sounds great. He was on with Audrey Carvel <clears throat> on the Morning Ireland program. And she was re reviewing a press release, obviously, that he had released. And as a part of that, not as the exclusive, but as part of that, he's asked about his brief in relation to Dublin and Monaghan bombings, something that will occur later in our conversation today. And he made something which is extraordinarily important for our listeners, and that is this. He said, I have no jurisdiction in the Republic. I'm absolutely happy to help with anything I have. I have a good relationship with Commissioner Harris, but I have no jurisdiction in the Republic. So when we see him in July of last year, Mick, standing in a field in Cooley, talking about the murder and abduction of Tom Oliver, it, me as a police officer of many years are saying, because a, a police officers are police officers within a defined legal area, their own country. They have no authority elsewhere unless it's provided for otherwise. So what is he doing there? And how did he get a hold of that investigation? And by the way, from what I can read and read the stuff is it looks like he doesn't have an investigation in relation to Tom Oliver. He has something called a review or an analytical review, quite different from a criminal investigation. OK, but the scenario we're at is, and I reported on some of this, John, in, in the Irish Examiner to the effect that uh, I have deduced that through sources that the Gardaí who conducted that cold case review were relatively happy with the evidence they'd uncovered and believed that at the very least they'd uncovered enough evidence that should lead to arrests in order to advance the, the investigation into Tom Oliver's murder. But what happened after they handed the information over to Canova was, well, not very much happened. Now, I suppose we have to take into account one thing, that's the pandemic, and that slowed up a lot of things. Notwithstanding that, the next development we know about is that officers from Canova are approaching retired members of Ungarda Siakana. My information is that they were unaccompanied by serving members of Ungarda Shikana, which would be highly unusual. Just again, to give people a, a, another example, we had the French police investigating down in West Cork, Sophie Tuscan Duplanty. They were accompanied by Irish detectives, as would be normal, as would be normal in any other jurisdiction. Yet it would appear these uh, British detectives showed up to at least two retired Gardaí introduced themselves and said they had the, the, the nod or they had the permission from the commissioner's office and wanted them to answer some questions. Now, two things arise there for me, John. First of all, that seems highly unusual way of doing business. And secondly, whatever uh, relevance the information these Gardaí have, could it be anyway central to uncovering are furthering the investigation into Tom Oliver's death? Yeah, look, first of all, I think your sources are probably very accurate in that regard, that this is what happened. These guys turned up on the doorsteps of people around the country, in the Republic, the former, former Garda officers. By the way, they did the same thing, and I know this to my own knowledge too, with RUC officers in the North as well, that they arrived on the door looking for information and, and, and contact. It is 
Point you made it is, it is highly irregular. There is a proper system for doing that. And later on in this interview, we can come back to what that looks like. But they have going, taking John Boucher's words himself, is they have no legal authority in this jurisdiction. But as you said there, Mickey, it appeared like that they had the nod, uh, uh, that's not my quote, in relation to from Drew Harris, uh, from the commissioner, it was okay to do, to do this. But I also know that some of the guards involved sought from uh, their, uh, their their newfound friends, uh, fine, look, we think it was a horrible crime, and of course the perpetrator should be punished uh, uh, for it. But tell me something, can you demonstrate to me that you have the authority of the Commissioner on Gal Shikana to do this? Now, as far as I know, and open the correction if somebody else can tell me, that affirmation was never presented to the guards that they saw, the retired guards. In written form. In any form other than verbal. And you and I know how good a verbal promise is, yeah? Yeah, and the reason that putting a small bit of emphasis on this is you you mentioned, uh, I think it was in it was in the 30th anniversary of Mr. Oliver's murder. There was this press conference in the Cooley Peninsula involving John Boucher. And a certain emphasis was put or certainly was taken by the media at the time that these retired Gardaí, they, whatever they knew, was key to this, and they weren't cooperating. And as a result of that, a number of politicians came out and made noise, Irish politicians in this state, suggesting, you know, Gardaí should cooperate. And my investigation to any of it, John, suggests to me that whatever these retired Gardaí may know, it, it's pretty peripheral to the crime that was committed. Absolutely right, Michael. I mean, let's be very clear on this is. Unambiguously, the crime was committed by self-admission by the provisional IRA. That's point number one. Number two, there are three individuals who know more about this crime than any retired guard could ever know about it. One is now Commissioner Drew Harris of the Gardaí Shikana, got that information legitimately as part of his duty for the police service of Northern Ireland. The other one is, the, the other one is quite obviously Kevin Fulton, Peter Keeley. Uh, and the third one is, is uh, Freddie Scapititi, who has been in British custody or protection since 2003. Now, those are the three guys any investigator will tell you where the, where the stone drops in the pool. That's the point you start your, your investigation and the ripples go out from that and you pick up all the other peripherals. So in very clear investigative terms, any investigator, what his or her solve would say to you, what on earth are you doing on the, on the vast periphery of this murder of, of, of 1991 by looking to interview guards who happened to be stationed in Dundalk or had knowledge of the original crime in terms of the finding the perpetrators of it. And that's why myself, as a retired senior police officer, cannot understand for a second what this is all about in terms of a proper criminal investigation. Okay, John, so we have a scenario now where, as you say, there appears to be some emphasis being put on what these retired Gardaí can do. At the same time, I think it's very safe to say that two of the individuals who appear to have a lot of knowledge about this, the British security services have access to them. They're, they're both former agents that were operating for them. And, and as you say, they're, they're currently in the care of, of the British state. So therefore, they should be easy access to them. The third one, of course, is Drew Harris and his capacity as RUC officer, what he knew there via intelligence. To be fair to Drew Harris, John, I think he has noted, legitimately so, that in his current capacity, he does not have access to that because he is no longer working for the PSNI. 
Yeah, Mick, and, and that's the line that Mr. Harris has, has advocated. But listen, this is that's a basic conundrum. Why? Because the officers in command of Drew Harris, he's commissioner of the guards, have a legitimate duty to investigate this uh, crime. And their commissioner has in his possession, because you can't hermetically seal your head from one side to the other, in his possession, absolute intimate knowledge of the background on this. And he now maintains a position, which he actually advocated at the Justice Committee on the 13th of February 2019, where he said, this information on Tom Oliver's mother is now the property of the Chief Constable of the PSNI. So we have the Chief Guard, the Commissioner, saying, yes, I had information in 2012. Yes, I know the background, but I cannot now, for Jesuitical reasons, share that with my own investigators. Now, I'm a plain country lad. There seems to be a basic conflict in that scenario where I, as the leader of the team, cannot share my information or direct my team. But I know maybe in a minute we're going to talk about what a normal cross-border police cooperation system would look like. And it would probably take a lot of the innuendo that might otherwise be there out of the current situation involving Mr. Harris and Canova and John Boucher and stuff and so on. But there is a basic potential conflict of interest for the commissioner in the current situation where he has information that he can't share with his own officers. Okay, but one other way of looking at it, John, is the information is in possession of the PSNI, which can pass it on to Canova, which is also operates under, under the British flag, if you want to put it that way. So that of itself can go towards the potential of investigating this murder, along with the information held by the two British agents. Yet, despite all that, it would appear that there is still very little advance in terms of getting towards the prosecution. Now, to be well, fair... I'm just going to stop you there for a second. Yeah. No, no, you see, the, the, the basic problem is that Canova, as in the words of, of John Boucher in June of 2020, Audrey Carvel, has no jurisdiction in the Republic to do anything here. None. Nada. Right. He has no jurisdiction. So without jurisdiction, which can easily be achieved, by the way, this is not a this is not a kind of a, a trick question. He has so any of the Canova related activities from a criminal investigation point of view have no standing. They have no locus standing in the Republic because John Boucher and his British police officers have no jurisdiction here. So that's the one that defeats that proposition from the point of view of a logical way forward. But there is a way it can be handled and we we'll get there shortly. Okay, just I might just put in here in terms of when I was researching a lot of this, I was in touch with Canova and the following statement was given to me attributable to um, Canova's lead, uh, former chief counsel, as he described, John Boucher. And this was the, the statement. Our investigation into the murder of Tom Oliver is wide and far reaching. We are keen to speak to anyone who might have information which can help us establish the truth of what happened to him and who was ultimately responsible for his death. I am sure all those connected with the various investigations that have occurred since Tom was killed would want this remarkable family to have at least a peace of mind knowing what happened. Anyone who has met the family or knew Tom would want them to finally know what took place. And I think nobody would disagree with that, but the question is outstanding as to now, four years after they received the information from Mungardi Shikana and with the access they would have to the former British agents, why it appears it has not been advanced. Now, John, I just I want to come to the political context, but just before that, if this were, as you say, a normal cross-border cooperation between the two police forces, how would it be conducted? Yeah, very simply, Mick, and I'll be quite quick on this one, is the first thing is that there's nothing wrong with police-to-police -police information exchange, where they talk to each other on matters, of, and though that's subject to certain rules. 
and it's principally carried out through international networks like Interpol and Europol, the Schengen system, and bilateral exchanges, which would be the case between North, South, and East. Yeah? And by the way, I was the head of Interpol and Europol in Ireland, and I sat in Europol for seven years in The Hague. So I, I sort of know a little bit about how the international uh, cooperation works. In an ideal scenario, both jurisdictions would form uh, a joint investigation team. And that would have two bodies of people operating to a common uh, a common goal, share information, and a decision would be taken, which would require a political nod that, that one or other of the jurisdictions would accept primacy for it in terms of the prosecution of it. Because remember, Mick, that murder can be tried in any jurisdiction. The murder of an Irish citizen can be tried in any jurisdiction. As a matter of fact, there's one happening in Brazil as we speak. No. The other area, to, if we were to legitimize the Canova operation, and again, I'm totally mystified because the, the, the killing does not figure on the terms of reference or anything that, that is there for, for uh, Canova. And it's a mutual assistance cooperation. So you, and there's a mutual assistance convention, an agreement, let's call it that, a legal agreement where the police forces or law enforcement from one country can go to the other. Following this formula, interview Mick Clifford or John O'Brien in the presence of a, a domestic officer and they can raise material that can be used as evidence for a trial back in their own jurisdiction. A very simple mutual assistance convention used endlessly around the, 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 the criminal justice cooperation space. So if Canova was to be legitimized, it would be done in the context of a mutual assistance request and agreement. Okay. Now, one final thing then, John, in relation to this case, and it does appear a bit murky between everything, and that is the current political context in which the British government, uh, contrary to the wishes of the vast majority of political parties and presumably people in the North, are pushing through a version of this legacies legislation, which would make it more difficult to prosecute anybody for a murder from the Troubles era. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but for example, if this murder and the details of it were to come out, and if there was an involvement of two British agents in it, it would be somewhat embarrassing to the British. That's just a fact. Now, we have to presume that it's just a pure coincidence that this legacy bill is going through, that there's been political noise about this sort of thing for the last couple of years, and that if no final juncture is reached in the investigation to Tom Oliver's murder before the legislation happens, that makes it an awful lot less likely that we will ever know who killed the poor man. Absolutely. And the other thing, Mick, which is absolutely germane to the point that you made is uh, John Boucher does not have a cat blanche in relation to what he reports or where it goes to. Under his own, uh, under his own files, and, there, and you can again, it's there available on, on the website, any information that's prejudicial to public interest, national security, economic well-being, or the prevention or detection of crime in Great Britain can be barred from any publication going forward. And that means that there is a, a fatwa, there's an absolute roadblock with John Boucher, despite all his wonderful mellifluous words, he has to get cabinet office approval for any report that he's submitting. And he has spoken very eloquently about having a public-facing report, but it is a conditional public-facing report. It has to be vetted by the Cabinet Office, it has to be approved by the, the Chief Constable of the PSNI. So the, this whole business of, of, uh, of, of Boucher in relation to the unfortunate Tom Oliver, and I feel really sorry that his family may be 
exploited in this whole business because of course the grief of his killing lasts down through the years but Boucher does not have a carte blanche he is not independent and it's not even clear if what the investigation is running is actually a criminal investigation because he has no jurisdiction in the republic to do it Absolutely. And there is no suggestion other than that John Boucher is doing the utmost he can to solve this murder within the constraints that are there. And he's, he has emphasised that time and again, and he's definitely a man to be taken at his word. However, the point you're making, John, the ultimate outcome of that is, were it decided at a political level in the British government that it was not in the public interest to publish this, for example, because it would expose for example, the the operation of British agents within the IRA, you would then have a scenario whereby this man, Tom Oliver, was murdered, brutally murdered by the IRA, yet the British government would determine that it was not in the public interest that it be discovered who exactly killed the man. Well, that's exactly the point, and it is an, it is it is a point that cannot be explained away by mellifluous words or pious attitudes on the thing. It is a very cynical exercise uh, uh, in in that regard. And as an investigator myself, I would just absolutely say you have the means of doing this correctly and properly, but you have chosen a different road, and that road has a series of roadblocks in it. And God love us, we are never ever going to get to the truth. We know the provisional IRA killed the unfortunate man. That's where the story starts. That's where the, the people with the knowledge of that, the intimate knowledge of that, have the ability. And it is an investigation that can be run north or south. It isn't the exclusive property of one or the other. OK, but and again, just to emphasise, there's no suggestion whatsoever that Mr. Bouch is being cynical in his approach, that he is operating entirely within the constraints of his brief as the head of Canova. John, that's thank you very much for enlightening us in that. I think this is a fascinating case. I think it goes to the heart of an awful lot of things about the Troubles, about the legacies of the Troubles, about the operation of British agents during the Troubles, and about, on another level, the brutality of the provisional IRA during that period. John, before we leave, I just want to check with you. Where can people get your book? Yeah, the bookmaker is called Securing the Irish State uh, on Gaul Shikana, 1922 to 2022. And it's available from, this is an, is an email address because there are only a thousand copies of this book done as a centenary hardback version of the history of the guards. And it's available from info at gardaretired.com. That's info at gardaretired.com. And it will also be available very shortly as a Kindle edition from Amazon or, or the usual outlets. And it covers this area in passing, but it covers much more from the foundation of the state and the historical background and the different events over the decades uh, since its inception. Again, very grateful to you, Mick. Thank you for, for listening. And I hope it does illuminate a little of the background of these terrible events. And thank you very much for joining us, John, and good luck with the book, because it does sound like there's some fascinating um, threads and, and, and stories in there that a lot of people will find interest. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer for today, the Irish Examiner, pitch editor Jim Collin. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll talk again soon.